Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. In life, we often keep repeating the same patterns, even if they're not beneficial to us. And even if we become aware of this, we likely may still not understand ourselves. That's because we don't fully know our hearts and minds. In fact, most of what is inside of our mind is hidden from us. There is, however, a proven way to illuminate these parts of ourselves with the help of psychodynamic therapy. And our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Shedler, is an expert on the human condition. He is a psychologist, master clinician, and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California. He is internationally known as an author, researcher, and clinical educator. His 2010 article, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, was applauded for establishing psychodynamic therapy as an evidence-based treatment. Jonathan is the co-creator of the Shedler weston Assessment Procedure, a clinician completed psychological test for personality assessment and clinical case formulation, and he's the co-author of the Personality Syndrome section of the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual. Jonathan is a leading voice of upholding the psychoanalytic tradition of psychotherapy and has been on a mission to clear up the misconceptions about psychodynamic thinking that are pervasive in psychiatry and psychology. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Jonathan, welcome to Superhumanize. I'm so pleased to get to connect with you today. I'm pleased to be here. When I did my research about you and your work, I came across something you said, and you correct me if I'm not paraphrasing this correctly. You said that in the last 25 years, the entire field of psychotherapy has really been getting very shallow and superficial. Can you explain? <laughs> I, I think you're getting it correctly. Yeah, I, I can explain. Um, there are a lot of players or quote-unquote stakeholders in what's now called the mental health wellness space. And, and the stakeholders have different agenda. And the agenda is not necessarily the best care for patients or clients. What's happening is who's dominating the cultural narrative about mental health care it's large corporations. It's the health insurance industry. It's the pharmaceutical industry, which by the way, I mean, they don't just shape the discourse and shape conversation. They shape laws and policies. Those, those two industries contribute more in political campaign donations and hire and pay more for lobbyists. They're among the top three industries than any other industry. They're really putting a stamp on how we talk about about mental health care. 
what's the financial interest of health insurance companies? It's to pay as little as possible. So over the past 25 years or so, they've been systematically working to shape the dialogue about mental health in a direction that leads people to briefer and more and more superficial treatments. We've got the pharmaceutical industry, sort of indifferent to whether people get psychotherapy or not. Their profit and their revenues come from selling drugs. So they want to shape the discourse in such a way that the first place that somebody looks for mental health care is somewhere where they're likely to get a prescription. All the time. And it's on television. You can't miss it. And it's an ad for some particular psychiatric drug. And it says, talk to your doctor. The pharmaceutical companies know, and everybody in healthcare knows, your poor doctor, your primary care doctor is just besieged on all sides. He might have 15 or 20, he or she might have 15 or 20 minutes to spend with you. You've got to deal with other medical complaints also. Very little that a primary care doctor can offer, by the way, by way of mental health care. If you go to a primary care doctor and you say, I'm suffering from depression or anxiety or panic or, or whatever, the overwhelming likelihood is you're going to walk away with a prescription. That's by design. We didn't have advertising saying, talk to your doctor. Said if you have mental health problems, see a psychologist, see a psychiatrist, talk to somebody. It's the pharmaceutical industry that, that sort of put this in everyone's consciousness. Oh, if I have mental health issues, I should talk to my doctor. That's usually a terrible place to start looking for help. And, or, and then, boy, this is a big topic. I could go on and on. Yes. <laughs> you, you want me oh. to go. And then we have academic researchers, wittingly or unwittingly, who are in cahoots with, with health insurers saying the briefest, cheapest therapies. And what academic researchers are doing are studying time-limited therapies often therapies that are conducted by following an instruction manual, right? So imagine you go into therapy and you think the therapist is interested in getting to know you as a person, like who you are, your, yourself, your personhood, find out about your life, understand you, help you understand yourself. You think that's what you're getting. And what they're actually doing is following an instruction manual with a pre-programmed agenda. And health insurance companies love that because it's fast and it's cheap and it can be offered by fairly low level, like minimally trained providers. Right? And they want to sell that as they call it evidence-based treatment. And it's, a, and it's a code word. It doesn't mean what people think it means. Right? If you say evidence-based, that sounds like a good thing. Right? People hear the word and they think it means, oh, this has been scientifically tested. This has been proven to work. This has been proven more effective than other therapies. Evidence-based means, as the word, as the term is applied to psychotherapy, what it actually means is therapy, very brief therapies con conducted by following instruction manuals. Huh. And people don't know that. This is really crucial, Jonathan. And I want to share something. We actually talked before we hit the record button. We talked about the current state of mental health care. And also, of course, all these startups popping up. You rightfully yes. mentioned there's what I like to call Wall Street bros, really just interested in- Wall Street bros and tech yeah. bros. Yeah, and tech bros and turning a dollar. Now, I think the desire to create avenues for individuals who are suffering to get care is commendable um, because there's so much need and it's so difficult. Well, it's not commendable though, if you know something good, which is providing care to people who need it 
so their lives can be better. So there's yeah. less suffering. Yeah. It, it, it's not so good if, if something that is fundamentally a good thing is distorted or perverted in the service of something very different from providing good care to people. And to your point, this is actually the experience I had out of curiosity and also out of personal desire and need. I actually engaged with a couple of these online providers and in both cases... I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. And in both cases, it was exactly as you described before, there was no real personal relationship developed. There was no, I did not feel that there was a true interest in learning about me. I also, I really felt it was going through the numbers, yes. which also led to me continuing with either and becoming right. quite disconcerted. So that's why on the one side, I think it's commendable that we're as a culture are looking for different avenues to bring healing to people. But to your point, I agree that what we're doing right now is perverted and it's not working. And in fact, but people are making a lot of money at it. Yes, they are. And you are actually somebody who for, who is very well known to be an outspoken and about these issues, which are, I think now we're just seeing them culminate in this tech sector, but the issues have been there before. In 2010, you published a paper in the journal American Psychologist, yes. The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, and it was very well received internationally, and it still gets cited a lot. Can you tell us about this in a nutshell, if possible, and also tell us how you actually got so passionate and interesting. <laughs> I can tell you, yes. Please. So let me zoom out for a moment. And this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say in our discussion today. Here is the fundamental truth at the heart of what psychotherapy is about. The fundamental truth is psychotherapy requires a meaningful, ongoing human relationship a human connection. That is the precondition for anything that's meaningful to happen, right? You can't bypass it. There's no end run around it. There's no bypass around it. It's a human relationship. It's two human beings getting together in a room or nowadays often on screen, but two human beings who both make free decision that they want to engage in this relationship. And they want to create this relationship. Nothing of lasting value is going to come out of the therapy if it's not in the context of a meaningful human relationship. And here's the issue that takes time. And it takes time of two human beings, it takes time of the therapist, and time is money. So investors, stakeholders, businesses, corporations get involved in mental health care. That's the very first thing they target. Those relationships, right? Those relationships take time and time is expensive. And what they see is that's where their costs are going. How do they, how do they control those costs? And the first thing that they want to do, and it looks, there's lots of different ways to do it. There's lots of different ways this looks, but the first thing they want to do is either eliminate or substantially reduce that human relationship and put the focus somewhere else. 
It's not the relationship. It's this tool. It's this technique. It's this app. It's this self-study program. It's a treatment manual. Follow these steps in the manual. Any therapist can substitute for any other and do it. So everybody is looking for, everybody in this financial area is looking for the holy grail. And the holy grail is, can we find an intervention that's helpful and that scales? The answer is no, because at the heart of meaningful psychotherapy is a human relationship, and a human relationship does not scale. All of these companies, startups, they're selling everything under the sun in the name of mental health. All of these companies are selling something other than psychotherapy, calling it psychotherapy. Because if it's not a meaningful human ongoing relationship, you've just cut the heart out of it. Everything else is just trappings. And and that's that's the issue we have here. Your health insurance company has no incentive (laughs) to pay for you to develop a relationship with someone. The pharmaceutical industry is indifferent about it, not working against it, but they are working to steer you to something else. Therapy by texting. That's not a human relationship. Therapy by app, therapy by computer. I just read a study somewhere, not in detail, but AI chatbots are getting really good. And they had people get something like therapy or some kind of mental health care. And some of them were texting. See, there's the problem already. It's already not real therapy. Real therapy doesn't happen by text. But they had people texting without knowing. And they were texting either an actual person, a therapist, or this chatbot. And the finding that really interested me, first of all, the, like, the people reported when they didn't know what was on the other end, they actually reported that what they were getting from the chatbot was like more informative and more helpful. Wow. But the so- moment they found out at the other end was a machine and not a person. It changed everything. And all of a sudden, they were not satisfied with their experience because a machine can emit responses that sound like empathy, that sound like understanding. What is empathy? Empathy for another person is we can feel with them. We know their experience. We know it from the inside out because it's an experience we ourselves had. Or it's an experience that comes very close to something we've had. Everybody knows what it's like to be depressed, to feel hopeless, to feel despondent, to feel frightened, to feel anxious, right? This is, these are all within the realm of human experience. And maybe a person can say words that sound like empathy and a machine can say the same words. It's just not the same experience. So anyway, I'm being redundant, but (laughs) you take the human relationship out of it, it's not psychotherapy. And everybody out there is trying to convince you that there's some bypass around the relationship. So you have academic, academic psychologists studying so-called evidence-based therapies. And I already said one of the defining features of evidence-based therapy is it's conducted by an instruction manual. The second defining feature, with some very limited exceptions, is that these therapies are very brief, typically six to eight sessions. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to hear this. Six to eight sessions is the time it takes to say hello. We're trying to create a relationship of trust. We're trying to create a relationship. The person you know, who's coming for therapy not just feels, but actually is 
understood and not understood at the surface, understood at a deeper level. That takes time. And we have research, we have studies that tell us on average how long it takes for meaningful change to to, to occur in psychotherapy. And all of these evidence-based therapies are over <laughs> before is, meaningful change can even begin. What is the heuristic for the timing for this meaningful exchange to be able to occur? Of course, it's different from individual to yeah. Everybody is different. So we're just talking about group averages. They just give us some general parameters of what's a reasonable expect expectation. So there's three kinds of studies. And fortunately, they all kind of converge in the same finding. And one kind of study, Consumer Reports actually did this on a large scale quite a few years ago, is simply ask patients, who, people who have had therapy and completed therapy, and did you get what you needed from this treatment? Did you went in because something in your life was something in your life was not right? Do you feel like things in your life are going the way you want now because of the therapy? And if so, how long did the therapy take? So that's one way you ask patients. Another way is you ask therapists, you ask clinicians. So in the study that I'm thinking about, we ask clinicians, think about the last treatment that you completed where you think that had a successful outcome for as far as you and the patient both are concerned, where there was meaningful and lasting psychological change. Just pick the last case in your caseload that fits that description. How long did the therapy take? So that's another way of asking. And the third way, I'm getting to the punchline, <laughs> and the third way is you could administer standard, standard tests that measure different symptom areas, qualities of relationship, and life satisfaction, and you could administer it on a weekly basis or periodically through the course of treatment. And we decide up front, statistically, how much change does there have to be in these measures for the person to be in the healthy, satisfactory range. Right? So we already know, right, before we start, we know what kind of change we're looking for on these instruments. So here's three ways of asking the same question, and the three ways converge. And what they converge on is that, on average, meaningful therapy begins at about the six-month mark. It's when not the person isn't well, but that's when meaningful changes start to happen. And we're right? talking about weekly therapy sessions. Typically, these are studies of weekly therapy. Some therapies are more often. We can talk about why and why there's a place for it, but most of the research is on weekly therapy. So starting and at meaningful change starts at the six-month mark and continues for one to two years. So what that tells us is about a year is a realistic parameter for what a minimally meaningful psychotherapy experiences. And meaningful change doesn't even start until six months. And then we have all of these space treatments and they're eight week or 12 week or shorter protocols, right? <laughs> so they're declaring, they're just declaring success and taking victory laps before meaningful change has even started. And they get scientific results. The results show that people who get these therapies have some improvement relative to a control group. What the public doesn't understand, and unfortunately, what people in the mental health professions sometimes don't understand, you get an immediate placebo response very quickly. Like you said, everybody is different. But if somebody comes to see me for the most 
common things that bring people in is some version of depression or anxiety. The overwhelming likelihood is they're going to start feeling better within the first few weeks because call it, you could call it a placebo effect in the therapy world. It's called common factors, things that all, every different kind of therapy has in common. One is there's a structured, a structured approach to helping the person. There's an expectation of change. Therapist or the doctor listens with attention and sympathy. They communicate that health is at hand. The patient feels that they're doing something for themselves. They may have struggled with their problems for a very long time. They've taken this giant step They've made an appointment. They're seeing someone. All of these things in offering some initial relief, some initial improvement. But that's not psychological change, right? That's temporarily feeling better because of the circumstances. That happens with medications too, right? All of those things are true. When somebody starts starts a psychiatric medication, they take the pill, they feel better. They attribute all of the benefits to the pill, but a lot of things are already at play that are all working to make them feel better that have nothing to do with the pill. If you look at therapy outcome in the very short run, immediately at the conclusion of the treatment or six-month follow-up is usually as long as they ever, as long as most studies go, it looks like damn near anything you study using our standard research methods is effective. You look Mm -hmm. at the person a year later, almost all of them have relapsed. There was no lasting benefit. So just- just a recap, yeah. meaningful psychotherapy requires a meaningful human relationship, mm-hmm. requires time, six months to a year minimum, and often running to two years. And there's a, there's a reason for that. By the time somebody gets to see a therapist, this, is, this problem has been going on for a long time. They've already exhausted all of the helpful advice from friends and things that they can think of and things that they've read on search for on Google or read on social media, they've done quite a bit to try to help themselves feel better. By the time they get to a therapist, we're talking about long, most of the time, we're talking about long-standing ingrained problems that took years or decades or a lifetime to develop. And it's just selling snake oil. Tell somebody that we're going to take difficulties that took were years in the making, and uh, they're going to magically change in a matter of weeks. That's just not how humans are constructed. Yeah. Thank you for your perspective on this, Jonathan. So I see a few things that make all of this difficult. First of all, we also talked about prior to hitting record, there's an overwhelming need, especially after these years of the pandemic, for mental health providers, for people are dealing with a lot of issues, some of them that have been long-standing, others that might have gotten triggered by these years of the pandemic. Uh, There's a huge need. And at the same time, it's it's very difficult to find a provider, period. And then it's even more difficult to find somebody who's actually really qualified and can really help. I have had quite a few friends who got very frustrated. And if you're not in the field, it's incredibly difficult to sort out real qualifications from minimal qualifications. Everybody on paper looks qualified and you really have to dig into the specifics and somebody who's not really have to be in the field yourself to understand what different kinds of licenses are, what different degrees are, what kind of post 
postgraduate training the person should That's have. It, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the Wild West out there. Yeah. And to get back to what you are not only really passionate about, but truly an expert and a leading voice in, for our audience to understand, we've talked about how crucial it is that there's a relationship, a meaningful relationship between the a patient and the therapist, also yeah. that it needs time. And just the basic overview for somebody who's not that familiar with all this, how does psychodynamic therapy ah. <laughs> differ from the routine? That's what you, yes, that's what you asked me to start with. So first of all, in the past, psychodynamic therapy was the routine therapy <laughs> before it got eroded, e eaten away at by all of these stakeholders with an agenda to provide something other than real psychotherapy. What is psychodynamic therapy? There's two words that are basically synonymous, psychoanalytic and psychodynamic, right? They're used interchangeably. A tradition of therapy that certainly didn't end there, but began with Freud in, in Vienna at the turn of the century. What people, it's interesting, I had just had a kind of Twitter war about this. Like people take Psych 101 in, in university and their textbooks are filled with misinformation. And the most important piece of information is they don't teach students about psychoanalysis or psychodynamic psychology as it's practiced today. They teach it, they, they teach it sort of caricature or stereotype of what it looked like in 1895 with Freud. And it's really, and the, in the Twitter exchanges, these professors of psychology who are teaching these intro courses kept saying Freud instead of psychoanalysis, using it interchangeably, like they actually didn't know that anything has changed in a hundred freaking years. <laughs> That's the level of ignorance that we're seeing even in universities. It's, it is, the analogy I made is Darwin is the father of modern biology, evolutionary biology. A lot of what, what people in biology are doing now ultimately traces back to his insights. Copernicus is the father of modern astronomy. Students in college taking biology 101 or astronomy 101 and thinking the entire field is synonymous with Darwin or some of synonymous with Copernicus, but that's how these intro psych professors are teaching it. Like nothing has changed. Sorry, I get, <laughs> I I get passionate about my that's digressions. The fundamental insight of psychoana psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy which does go back to the turn of the 20th century, to the late 1800s, early 1900s, is that there's such a thing as unconscious mental life. So let me say that in a little more user-friendly way. By virtue of being human, right? it's the human condition, we don't fully know our own hearts or minds. There is a, a vast universe of, of things that we don't necessarily know about ourselves. And our entire, there's an awful lot in our culture that's really pushing, pushing the message, your conscious thoughts are all there is. We know from so many different scientific and scholarly traditions that they're just flat out false. We know from neuroscience research, there's a tremendous amount of brain activity, thinking and feeling that goes on 
outside of consciousness. We know it from experimental psychology, from very cleverly designed experiments that show that people's people's choices, conclusions, and behavior can be influenced by things that the experimenter can control, the experimenter can manipulate in an experimental context that the person has no idea they're being influenced by, right? So we know it from neuroscience, we know it from experimental psychology, we know it from more than a hundred years of clinical experience. So psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapy starts with that premise. We don't fully know ourselves. Nobody fully knows ourselves. The things that we don't know are costly. They can create suffering, misery. Symptoms. Can you give us? Can you give us an example of this, so our audience can understand how crucial this is applied to their own lives? Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of the fundamental principles is things. When I say things, people's experiences, people's thoughts, feelings, symptoms, actions hold meanings that are not readily observable on the surface of things. So. People often come to treatment, but the most common diagnosis in medical charts is depression or some form of depression. People commonly come to treatment for depression or anxiety or something related to that. And when I, you introduced me, you said, I've been giving the message that therapy has been getting cheaper and more superficial. And here's what I'm talking about. People get treated for anxiety as though anxiety itself were the problem. So here are these things we can do to manage anxiety. There's breathing exercises, there's grounding exercises, there's mindfulness, there's medication. We're going to do something to manage your anxiety. But this is just fundamentally a different worldview than what has always traditionally been psychotherapy. And what's traditionally been psychotherapy is your anxiety has a meaning. Right? It doesn't cause itself. It's caused by something. If the person knows, what's anxiety? anxiety? Anxiety is fear. It's identical to fear in every way except one. And that is, if the thing that's making you afraid is something you know about, is something tangible out there, you like run into a, I don't know what, <laughs> you, you run into a vicious looking unleashed jaw dog that snarls at you and shows his fangs and then starts coming toward you in a menacing way. We don't say the person's anxious. We say they're afraid. So fear is for things out there in the external world, right? And the solution is deal with the thing out there in the external world, either avoid it or get rid of it. Anxiety is fear about something that's going on internally that's usually outside of consciousness, right? Something is making us, we're afraid of something, but we don't know what the something is. You know, there's now, there's now a fork in the road and that leads to two different approaches to treatment. And one approach is what I said, the idea is to manage it. We'll give you some tools to help you cope with your anxiety. The other fork in the road is we're not going to manage it we're going to find out what it's about. We're going to take the thing that's so frightening and bring it into the light of day. And the overwhelming number of times seen in the light of day, it's actually not so frightening after all. 
You learn something about yourself. You learn something about what you're frightened by. You learn that the thing that's frightening doesn't have to be frightening. And the change is permanent. It's not that we've managed your anxiety. It's that you as a person are now fundamentally changed Mm -hmm. and are different as a result, right? And those changes that really come out of self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-understanding, insight, stay with you and carry forward. And they affect other areas of your life positively, right? So we're not targeting just the anxiety. We're targeting the anxiety in a larger context where the goal really is to know yourself more fully. And out of this out of this kind of self-knowledge comes freedom from having to repeat painful patterns that lead to anxiety and depression. And I could give you clinical examples to put to put some flesh on the of the bones of that description. But that's the decision note. So mm-hmm. if somebody listening to this podcast is I'm depressed, I'm anxious, where do I go? What kind of treatment do I get? Really think about front and center. That's the fork in the road. Are you going somewhere to manage what's wrong? Or are you going somewhere to understand yourself more deeply and try to get at the heart of what's wrong? And that path changes your life. Yes. I've certainly taken the one path that's managing. In my case, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I've been dealing with this ever since I can actually remember, even as a little girl. And I've realized in my mind certain things that are most likely a cause of this. I've learned how to manage it much better. The baseline of my anxiety has been really extremely lowered. However, I know it's still there. Yeah. And see, the way you described it is really informative. And this comes up a lot. One of the ways the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, some people call it the Bible of psychiatry. This is one of the ways the DSM has really led to a devolution, not an evolution, but a devolution, a backwards movement in how we understand mental life and psychological functioning. You see, when you put a label on it like that, generalized anxiety disorder, are less likely to say, something is making me anxious. Something keeps making me anxious. What could it be? I don't understand it. I need help from somebody who can help me understand it and address it. it. But it leads us in a different direction. People now, instead of saying, I am a person who gets anxious and what does this mean? And they say, I have generalized anxiety disorder, like the way they could be talking about, I have COVID or I have diabetes, but it has nothing to do with me or how I live my life or how, who I am as a person. I'm just afflicted with this condition. So if a doctor or anybody says you have generalized anxiety disorder and it stops with that, try to move from the diagnosis to a treatment, they're skipping over the psychotherapy of psychotherapy because mm. we don't move from a DSM diagnosis to a treatment. We move from a DSM diagnosis to what we call in the field of case formulation, an understanding of what's going on psychologically that's underlying that diagnosis, underlying your, so your generalized anxiety disorder. And we treat that. And that's where what I was saying, that's where a long ongoing, meaningful relationship with a therapist comes in, you're not going to get at what's the underlying psychology 
time limited or superficial treatment approach. So that makes total sense. And, And this is really profound what you just said. You go from being somebody who says, I'm dealing with XYZ, I wonder what it's caused by, to saying, I have. Yeah. And as soon as you say, I have, it's really subtle, but words matter. When you say, I have, there's a way that you're implicitly denying the psychological, you're denying underlying meanings, you're denying unconscious mental life. Yes. And right, so it's framing, it's framing the thing that's causing difficulty or suffering in a way that's fundamentally unhelpful. Yes. So I'm. I agree this resonates very deeply, Jonathan, and I'm curious. And before I go into what I want to say, I acknowledge, obviously, we are not in in a therapist-patient relationship. We have not spent a lot of time together. So I do understand that it may be difficult to even give an answer to the following question. I'm still curious though. So somebody like myself, like there's many people out there who are dealing with anxiety. Some, I have done some digging deep. I understand that there's probably layers and different things that fuel it from, for example, my father was born in 1935. He was 10 years old when the second world war ended in Germany. So as a little boy, he went through the war years, then the hunger years, quite some important messaging in my childhood and also a young adult was the world is an unsafe place to some and other- And that gets transmitted from parents to children. Mm-hmm. So if this were psychotherapy, you've already, you've already told me something important. If you came into psychotherapy, I would basically say, I'd greet you. Tell me why you're here. Tell me how you're hoping I can help. And you would begin to you would say, I, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And I would say something like, tell me more about, that. tell me what that brings up for you. Tell me how you understand it. And the information was, your thoughts immediately went to your father and your family. So this isn't a conclusion for me. It's a hypothesis. We're a good therapist. It's constantly forming hypotheses, testing them through what we talk about and through your responses, right? looking to confirm or disconfirm, and generating a lot of hypotheses. This is just one of many that would come. Could it be that your anxiety has something to do with what was transmitted to you, what you learned right, in your family? And I don't know if it's true or not in this case. I only know what you just told me, but it's a very plausible pathway. Genuinely believes that the world is unsafe, is going to communicate this to their child in many ways and not just verbally. Mm-hmm. And this is why treating it, this is why treating it really takes some knowledge and skill. Because if it was just verbal, we could talk about what you were told, we could sit, consider whether it's still true, we could consider whether it applies to your life, but it was communicated non-verbally. You could say you you took in the fear and the distrust with mother's milk. It's in areas of the brain and areas of the body change much in response to words alone. It's not a logical issue. It's right. There, there's something deeper than that. I'll tell you a true story. I won't name names, but so I'm, 
a psychologist and has a doctoral degree in psychology, in my case, a PhD. But I was a professor of psychiatry. I spent years training psychiatry residents. I had just started at this psychiatry position as a faculty member, and I was the way that the training is organized, that we had an outpatient psychiatry clinic, the patients are seen by psychiatry residents and they're supervised by faculty members like me. So this psychiatrist and the psychiatrist meets with the patient in this particular clinic, the patient would still be there in the room and they would come and consult with the faculty member and then take in, take in their advice and then go back into the room with the patient. And the psychiatrist came out and she just started like by rote. She gave me some demographic information about the patient age and marital status. And then she just by rote started listing all these medications she was prescribing, which struck me as odd, having come from a psychology background, not a psychiatry background. And she's telling me these medications, I don't even know what she's treating the patient for. And she's giving me this laundry list. So I interrupted her and I said, what are we treating her for? And I said, how do you understand your patient's anxiety? And she looked at me like I was from Mars. Like she didn't even understand the question. Like in her mind, she already told me she's treating anxiety. What else could there be? And so she looked at me in this very strange, like non-comprehending way. So I tried to rephrase it. And I said, what do you think is causing your patient's anxiety? And she brightens and says, oh, she has generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> I said, generalized anxiety disorder is not the cause of her anxiety. It's the label that we use to describe it. It doesn't cause itself. So saying my anxiety is caused by generalized anxiety disorder is basically the same as saying my anxiety is caused by anxiety. Anxiety may actually be exacerbated by getting the label. So I said, what do you think is causing? I said, that's not a cause. And she looked at me blankly again. And I said, what do you think is going on psychologically? Psychologically? And I said, yes. What do you think is going on psychologically that, psychologically that could be causing her anxiety? And she said, she thought for a moment, and she said, I don't think it's psychological. I think it's biological. And I said, oh, good. So you have a hypothesis. Tell me why you think it's biological. And she said, her mother was anxious. So I don't know, you know your readers, your listeners may come away thinking I'm a good teacher or come away thinking I'm an absolute prick. What I said next is, let's do a thought experiment Suppose your patient was adopted at birth and the mother who raised her has no biological relation to her at all. Do you think that a mother who is constantly communicating that the world is an unsafe place, that things are frightening, do you think that could make a child anxious? Mm. She said, I never thought about it before. I never thought about it that way. And I was like, at that point, resisting the temptation to start banging my head on the cinder block wall because it was like, I just, I couldn't believe this was a psychiatry resident who was less than a year away from being a board certified, independently practicing psychiatrist. And she had never considered the possibility that the name of the condition is not the cause of the condition. The, the so, mind boggles. So that's one, that could be one path to Anxiety, right? That you have conscious and unconscious expectations about the world and real and imagined dangers in the world. And they're with you at every moment. And you're doing something perfectly reasonable and not anxiety provoking. And 
you might otherwise enjoy. And it's like these expectations and fears bubble through. That's one path. Some people have experiences of early trauma and something happens in day-to-day life that triggers or activates the trauma. They don't remember it consciously, right? They don't think, oh, this reminds me of the time that, that I got assaulted. They don't think that, but they respond emotionally and physiologically like they were in that time, right? So an earlier experience gets triggered. That's another pathway to anxiety. A third pathway to anxiety is we have defenses against emotions that feel frightening. And when the emotion seems is in danger of breaking through, we become very, we respond as if as if under threat. We mm-hmm. become very anxious. And I said before, anxiety is fear, but it's about something internal rather than external. Right? So we have people who are afraid of aspects of their own emotional life. You could call it emotion phobia. And that's incredibly common. Like I treated a patient with a resident a number of years ago. And the reason she came in is because she was having panic attacks. And she had several treatments before superficial treatments or psychomedication treatments that didn't offer lasting help. So we did something new. We did psychodynamic therapy, which is about recognizing that we don't fully know ourselves and working to understand ourselves better and understand ourselves more deeply, to come to know the parts of ourselves that are unknown. We started much like I just explained with you, she's saying, these panic attacks tell us about a recent panic attack, one that stands out. And she says it says, what does that bring to mind? Where do your thoughts go from there? So what we're trying to do is sort of map the chain or the network of thoughts, memories, events, feelings, right? They're all interconnected, right? And the person experiences this disconnected sense of panic. We want to trace out the connections. She started talking about her husband (laughs) and talked about another incident where she had a panic episode. Where do your thoughts go? She started talking about her husband. Every time she started talking about panic, she started talking about her husband. She didn't connect them. She didn't say, I'm panicky because of this or that about my husband. She was just, as far as she was concerned, just randomly saying what came to mind, which is what we asked her to do. But what we came to learn in the treatment was she was actually really angry with her husband, didn't know that she was angry because she was frightened of her anger. And at every juncture where she might otherwise have felt angry, she instead felt panicky. And we were able to trace this out and disentangle it. And for her to be able to talk about her anger, to bring these feelings into the light of day. And she had this unconscious conviction that her anger was something incredibly dangerous, that thinking the thought, the wish, the wish to retaliate or hurt him in some way was somehow synonymous with the act. So it was like, it's, she's put herself on trial for thought crimes. The thought, I wish something bad happened to him. I want to pay him back. It was equivalent to actually doing it. She didn't want to hurt her husband. It was ter- her anger to her was terrifyingly dangerous thing. Once it was out in the light of day and she could start talking about it openly and learning, not just intellectually, not just being told. It's not telling the patient your anger can't hurt anyone. 
It's actually having the lived experience of feeling it and expressing it and the lived experience of knowing that mm. thoughts and feelings are thoughts and feelings and actions are actions and they're different things, right? You have to live it. And that's one more reason therapy doesn't happen in six or eight sessions, You right? You have a certain, we could say, a certain kind of programming. We're laying down new and different programming, but that takes time. Right. This is fascinating, Jonathan, especially if we talk about an emotion such as anger, which oftentimes in our culture is labeled as, quote, negative. It's something that we're supposed to suppress, not acknowledge. And still to this, it's viewed as even more, quote, negative in women than in men. Emotions aren't negative. They're Mm. not negative. They're not positive. They are. We have emotions because we're humans, and that's how we're constructed. And our emotions are the product many generations and millennia of evolution. You can't get rid of them. You can't put the lid on them. You can't bury them. You can't disregard them. They're part of us. Mm. And part of what happens in psychodynamic therapy, when I say we, we come to know ourselves more deeply, we come to recognize difficult emotions, painful emotions, frightening emotions. We come to recognize and accept them as part of ourselves. So we're Living in, it's like part of the part of the personality rejects other parts of the personality, reacts against them, and says, "No, you must not exist. You cannot be acknowledged." And that has costs. That leads to symptoms. That leads to problems in relationships. The thing, right? Out of sight isn't out of sight isn't gone. The things that we push out of our mind don't disappear. They come back and affect us in indirect ways, and. That's how people develop symptoms, problems in living, psychiatric conditions. Right? So when we can know ourselves more fully and be more whole and integrated human beings, then we have then we have avenues for we have avenues for expressing these parts of ourselves that are not destructive. Yeah. Anger is negative, and especially women and women shouldn't feel angry almost every day with a patient my own practice, that we're starting to uncover anger and the patient will say, oh, I couldn't possibly say that or I couldn't possibly express that to my partner, my husband, my boyfriend, my boss. That would be terrible. I couldn't say that at work. My husband. It's a really important distinction. And I have to say, who said anything about what you say to your husband or your boss or your friend? We're not talking about what you say to them, not right now. We're talking about what you allow yourself to say to yourself. And once you grasp that distinction, you know, there's a there's a, a, a wonderful quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he says, the line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. We are all a mix of caring, constructive, loving urges and impulses and desires, and hateful, angry, destructive ones. That's the human condition. And the goal of therapy isn't to try to erase the things that we designate as negative. The goal of therapy is to know these parts of ourselves, know them well enough that we don't have to act on them. And this is profoundly important, Jonathan. I love that quote, by the way. Immensely (laughs) important and beautiful quote. And 
to acknowledge that we all have these contradictory impulses is paramount. And the people who, in fact, do things that are destructive and harmful to other people, there's a small percentage of people. There's my, my real area of expertise is personality styles, personality types. So one personality style is a psychopathic personality. And these are people who actually don't have an internalized moral system. Their moral system is what's right is what I can get away with. What's right is whatever personally benefits me in the moment. Lack a conscience or a capacity for empathy. Not only do they not have empathy for people that they harm, they actually take cruel, sadistic pleasure in it. But that's a tiny minority of people out there who are doing terrible harm. The majority of people who are doing terrible harm are doing harm not out of a conscious, intentional desire to cause harm, but because they don't know themselves and they don't know what they're doing. And the wishes, the feelings, the impulses that they, that they exclude from awareness come out in action, in behavior, in the real world, in ways that are horribly destructive. Yes. If, I, if we look at our current culture, I feel that it creates places where these impulses are channeled in destructive ways. If we, let's just talk about social media. And For example. The, the trolls, people who say and write horrible things all most of the time out of cozy anonymity who would most for the most part probably say of themselves oh i'm a good person i would never really do something bad to anyone else yeah and and there's lots of different psychological pathways to why somebody would do that would do that online but one of the pathways is that it's a form of compartmentalization Mm -hmm. that is they have this image of themselves like you say i'm a good person harm people. And then there's this whole other part of the personality that's running amok on social media. And the rest of them, some, this is a compartmentalization. That doesn't really count. That really wasn't such a big deal. I, uh, I saw an interaction on Twitter not too long ago about trolling. Ironically, it was on therapist Twitter. These were therapists, <laughs> put therapist in quotes. And it had really boiled over to threats about, I don't know if they were acted on or not, but threats about complaining to people's employers and and filing formal complaints with the license board. It really spilled over way beyond way beyond Twitter. And this this one interaction, this guy said something like, there's a, a difference between harassment and harmless trolling. <laughs> and he was defending one of the worst just malicious, vicious, sadistic people on Twitter. And, and that's what I mean by compartmentalization. Oh, I would never really want to harm people. This is harmless. So it's a defense. It's a form of denial. Yeah, this happens, but it doesn't really count. Yes. And, you know, I'm not that person's therapist, but if I were in therapy, I'd get very curious about it. I might start off by pointing out there's a way that you're talking about it that suggests it doesn't really count. It seems important for you to tell yourself these things that you've been involved in or or have been encouraging, these things are in a different category. They're not really that harmful. Mm. Help me understand that better. So I would invite exploration around that. 
And the goal would be, God, I just, there's going to be so many ideas of different ways. I, it, basically, the person is saying, you and I can look at the behavior and say, what a shitty thing to do. That person, looking from the inside out, his own behavior says, no, I do good things and here's this thing and maybe it's not my best quality, but this doesn't really count. So, no, there's one you. <laughs> you don't exist in separate compartments and you don't get to say what happens in this compartment doesn't count. There's one compartment, it's called you as a total person, and it seems important to you to minimize the effects of what you're doing here. Which also makes sense because most of us want to think about ourselves as a, quote, good person. And that's and why- we go through enormous mental gymnastics yeah. to try to to try to convince ourselves it's so, even while we unknowingly, unwittingly do things in the world that are quite harmful and destructive. You asked me about the origins of psychoanalysis, and I said it traced back to Freud. This is actually where psychoanalysis started. So one thing listeners need to know is if they took a Psych 101 class in, in college, they probably heard Oh, psychoanalysis is a theory about id, ego, and ego, superego. Mm-hmm. It's not true. <laughs> it's been generations since people in psychoanalysis have talked about id, ego, and superego in, in any way other than historical. We've moved beyond that model, but that's what they get taught in college. But they get taught even, right? So they're being taught kind of ancient history, but they're taught badly. So uh, this is directly relevant to what I'm talking about, the very first beginning observation. We think and feel and say and do all kinds of things, but there's a really interesting distinction that some of the things we think and feel and say, we claim as ours. And we say, I did it. I felt it. I wanted it. And some of the, he was basically, he recognized we are the author of all our thoughts and feelings and behavior. But we claim some of them and say, I, I do this. We disavow or disclaim others. And we don't accept responsibility for them. And we say, and when that happens, we tend to use the word, it just Mm -hmm. happened. The -hmm. devil made me do it. It wasn't me. It was the alcohol speaking, it. So (laughs) some things we say, I, and some things we say, it. Mm-hmm. Right? We claim it as ours or we disclaim it as not ours, but it's all us. And those were the actual words that Freud, the German words that Freud used. Freud did not use the words ego and id and superego. Yeah. He said in German, das ich und ich? das es. Yes. I yeah. and it. Right? Mm-hmm. I being the things we recognize and claim as our own and it being the things we disavow. The work, and he said, the work of psychoanalysis is where it was, I shall become. That, In other words, we're in the business of claiming or reclaiming what belongs to us. Beautiful. And what belongs to us is our thoughts and feelings and experiences and actions. So it's actually very relevant (laughs) to today, right? Like the person on social media who says, I'm a good person. I work for good in the world. I do good things. Oh, harmless trolling, that's in a different category. And she's saying, it's harmless trolling. It's not me. It doesn't bear on how I 
see myself. Yeah. Thank you for illuminating it for us, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And there's something else I wanted to ask you about because you mentioned to me in a prior conversation that you have developed, is this correct, an actual psych test? And it's something that's coming up in the near future? Yeah, I've developed several tests, actually. But the ones when we spoke about is called psych scan. This is important. So when we think about what brings somebody to treatment, we tend to think it as a starting point in terms of DSM diagnostic categories, right? Depression, anxiety, panic attack, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorder, right? Those surface, those are the surface conditions or manifestations of the problems. And one of the things I've I spent years consulting and teaching primary care doctors. And one of the things that I really tried to drive home with them is you can't can't assess depression. Does this person have depression? Because epidemiologically, there's actually no such thing, hardly ever such a thing as just depression. The person who's depressed also has anxiety. They might also have trauma. They might have alcohol abuse problem or substance abuse problem. People are complex packages. So if we get in the business of mental health, we really need to get a comprehensive picture of what's going on. So that's what my test does. It's uh, it's a questionnaire. It uses artificial intelligence, so it, it probes in greater or lesser depth depending on how you answer the questions. It actually assesses 11 different conditions that are in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, DSM-5. And it was originally designed for primary care physicians. It was basically a psychiatric lab test to give them a comprehensive picture of what someone is dealing with, hopefully so they could make suitable referrals. Now we're making the test available. It's already available to mental health professionals. Psych scan, they can put it on their website so right, so that patients or clients or prospective clients can come, click a button, take this self-test, and the patient gets a report in consumer-oriented language, not technical mm-hmm. language, but these are the symptom areas that you are having, and this is the kind of help that you know, is available that you should consider. The clinician gets clinically oriented report with specific diagnoses and things. And the intent is that's not the final step in, oh, you have, it'll diagnose generalized anxiety disorder. (laughs) The idea isn't, oh, you have generalized anxiety disorder. Now let's treat you. The idea is you have generalized anxiety disorder. Now we have a name for it. We understand the symptom, an area of symptoms that are causing problems. Hopefully then that prompts a referral to the kind of psychotherapy the fork in the road, not how do we manage this, but how do we understand it? Excellent. And when will this be available to the general public, Jonathan? So PsychScan for clinicians is available right now. And the website is has a hyphen, psych-scan.com. And PsychScan for the general public any month. Oh, I want to take that test. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very curious. Know thyself and then get to that fork in the road. I'll tell you in secret, you and <laughs> thousands of readers in complete secret. If you go to the site that's intended for clinicians, mental health professionals, psych-scan.com, there's actually a fully functional demo test on there. And you could actually take the test and, and get results. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, we shall do that. I'll also put it- That's in- going to change soon. We'll have separate sites for consumers yeah. and 
and professionals. But for now, that's where people can see it. Yeah, that's exciting. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. There is one question that I love to pick my honored guest's brain about, especially somebody who has spent pretty much most of his life looking in the machinations of the mind and truly healing if there's ailments present. Are there any practices that may have been with you for quite a while in your life or something new that you've picked up that has enhanced your life mentally, physically, and or spiritually? And if so, would you be willing to share? Me personally. Mm -hmm. I've had years of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, so that's one practice. Yeah. This isn't exactly what you asked. I said, there's a fork in the road. There's a dividing line. It's incredibly difficult to find therapists providing what I would call meaningful therapy. One of the things, find the person with the reputation and the highest level of credentials that you can. That, that's just a given. Find somebody properly trained. But I think the most important thing you could know about them is how much personal psychotherapy have you had? And I don't know how a particular therapist is likely to respond to a direct question, but I'd ask it anyway. How much personal therapy in hours? <laughs> and the answer is the answer cannot be six hours or eight hours or 12 hours. It ought to be hundreds of hours. At least if you're going to go into this field, that's the most important practice I can think of. That is great input. Thank you, Jonathan. And to wrap this really fascinating conversation up, I would like to know from you, what would you like to see happening for the future of psychoanalysts and psychoanalytic therapy? And how well, nobody knows what nobody knows what it is, and people get sold snake oil and told that eight or twelve sessions of instruction manual therapy is, is the gold standard of care. I would like to see that narrative change that most people who are looking for therapy are looking for and think they're going to get is they want a human being to connect with, to talk to, who is going to genuinely understand them and who is going to genuinely help them to better understand themselves. So, I, so that you know, not better understand yourself for your own sake, for its own sake, in the service of something more important, to better understand yourself, help free yourself from, mm. from self-defeating, dysfunctional patterns that you're caught in that keep creating problems for you. The goal of the treatment is freedom. And I think certainly not all. I think most people looking for therapy are looking for that, and they got sold something else instead. Mm. So I would love to see what I would call psychological literacy. Are you going to give me, you therapist, are you going to give me techniques and skills and tools to manage this or that set of feelings? Or are you going to help me understand myself more deeply so that I can become a more complete whole version of myself and a better version of myself and live my life, live my life more freely? And that's what I would like to see happen. Beautiful. And I would like to see the stakeholders promoting other kinds of therapy stop painting it as an absurd caricature of something that's been like outmoded, debunked, discredited, scientifically disproven. None of that is true, by the way. That's the caricature. And the whole, the whole nation, not just America, the 
the entire Western world is getting sold a bill of goods. And it all traces back to this one issue, which is meaningful psychotherapy takes a relationship and it takes time and time is money. And everyone is trying to convince the public that there's a bypass for that. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. And I certainly hope that we get to a place where we have a solution for the what seems like such a huge and sometimes overwhelming demand and the qualified individuals who can actually help people heal their issues, not only mask them or manage them in some way. And being, becoming and being the best version of ourselves. That's what we're all about here at Superhumanize. So thank you so much for making time for us. And thank for you. those in the audience who'd like to learn more about you, connect with you, where can they find you, Jonathan? They can find me on my website, which is my name, jonathanshedler.com. Super. And I'll put all the information, including also the psych test. And there's a page, on, uh, there's a writings page on my website. Or a lot of the articles and papers that I've written over the years are are available, freely available for download. And some of the, most of them are intended for, you know, are, are technical, technical or scientific works intended for mental health professionals. But there's a section of, of papers that are intended for the general public. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing, Jonathan. And thank you for sharing your time with us today and your insights. It was truly a pleasure to connect with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.